Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than nine years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Brian Curtis, an editor-at-large for The Ringer. Brian hosts The Ringer's Press Box podcast and writes about sports and occasionally other things for The Ringer website. I'll leave it to him to explain what an editor-at-large is anyway. We'll discuss Brian's extensive career, and it turns out that I had the totally wrong impression of him. He did not spring forth in the media industry as a fully-formed sports journalist. He instead started doing other stuff and gradually worked his way toward sports. His career takes him to the New Republic, Slate, The Daily Beast, Grantland, a short-lived New York Times sports magazine, and probably some other things I'm forgetting. It's a truly impressive career through a lot of startup internet outfits that are now seen as mainstream big media brands. It certainly sounds like it was a lot of fun along the way. I mean, he gets to interview George Lucas at one point. His writing is also very different than many of my past guests, as to one degree or another, his jobs have all involved some level of opinion writing, or at least a strong point of view that you don't see in hard news. Then about this episode, I won't lie, if you're listening to this on Sunday, July 18th, when it's supposed to come out, it's a small miracle I've actually managed to get this episode together. I'm juggling it with a reporting trip in the Amazon rainforest that has been a bit of a scramble to pull together. If I do manage to get it out, chalk it up to Brian being the consummate podcasting professional, and this one requiring much less editing than normal. Also, one quick fact check. I at one point slander Brian by saying something about him contributing to a movie roundup at The Ringer. I had it wrong. I looked again at his back catalog, and it was just some other podcast he went on to talk about the sequel to Borat. Like most internet users, I failed to actually click through and see what the heck it was. Anyway, with that small errata aside, here's my interview with Brian Curtis, an editor-at-large at The Ringer and the host of the Press Box podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Brian. Thank you for having me. I'm honored, I'm honored that you asked. Yeah, I appreciate it. And we'll get a little bit into why I invited you on a, a bit later once we uh, talk a little bit about your biography but to start, if you could just set the scene for us, where are you geographically and the physical space around you? And tell us a little bit about what your past week has been like work-wise. Sure. I'm in uh, northwest Connecticut. I'm in uh, a little cabin in the woods on the second floor surrounded by a whole bunch of books that I didn't remember putting in here. But I am really <laughs> excited to read this summer if I have any time. I tend to buy lots and lots of used books and then... Uh, and then sort of forget to read them. <laughs> uh, last week, work-wise, we're in the middle of the NBA Finals, which at the ringer is like being in the middle of a national election. So I did a very uh, 2021 thing, which is that, you know, host a podcast called The Press Box. And I had been doing this thing on the podcast all the time saying, every time the media writes a story about an old person rediscovering talent we thought had dribbled away, we, we should call that story The Old Guy Still Got It. Mm-hmm. So Martin Scorsese makes another great movie after a little bit of a slack period. The old guy still got it. You know, Phil Mickelson wins the PGA Championship, et cetera, et cetera. So Chris Paul made the NBA Finals at 36 years old, which is old by NBA standards. So I said, aha, I finally have to take this bit that I've been using on the podcast over and over again and just turn it into a column. So that's been my last week work-wise. 
So you wrote that up. I did. In addition to doing the the podcast. And just uh, to explain a little bit to our listeners, you have one of those titles that I love because I have no clue what it means. You're an <laughs> editor at large at The Ringer, and you seem to do a little bit of everything. Uh, could you just explain what exactly that position means? I'm, I'm glad you don't have a, an idea because I don't either, really. <laughs> uh, I love the title. I never want to lose it, but... Yeah, it you know it was an old time life title back in the day, and I think you know when they put editors out to pasture, they would call them editor at large and say, okay, you know you're still on the payroll, you're not really running anything, but you're editor at large. No, it just it it sort of means, I think in the in a happy sense that you have an opportunity to do lots of things, that you're self directed a little bit, that you can, you know, in my case, write about sports and write about politics and talk about the media and all those kinds of things. So that's how I interpret it. That it's a it's a cool title, you know, that that sort of says, hey, Brian's going to do lots of different kinds of things for us. Right, right. You've got broad license to do things. It's almost like, yeah, a special correspondent or something for a newspaper. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that'll be for my next, in my next life. <laughs> sure. Okay. And so then we like to get some idea of how you got to where you are today, how you became this editor, podcaster, et cetera, at The Ringer. And, you know, a lot of young journalists listen to this and, you know, it's about giving them kind of an idea of how people find their way to where they are. And I like to start way, way back at the beginning. If you could just tell us a little bit about where you were born, what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seeds early on for your interest in journalism. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, which is the other part of DFW, the FW and DFW airport, <laughs> a nice big, but not super big and small, but not super small city. It's a really, really fabulous place. And I still love going back there. Spent my whole life there, my whole childhood there, my whole childhood in the same house. Um, I grew up around very sports mad people. We're very into football and baseball and basketball and everything else. Sure. And about second grade, and I think every sports writer has this in their biography somewhere, I just realized I was not going to be a great baseball player, <laughs> no matter how much I wanted to be. <laughs> my, my first dream was to play second base for the Texas Rangers. And I think I was really lucky that that was taken off the table very, very quickly. But another funny thing was happening, Jake, at the same time, which is that I was reading the sports page every day, because we were actually reading newspapers back then. This is the 80s. <laughs> and... Well, the funny thing was happening is that I was, you know, you, you, of course you'd open that big, cool Sunday sports section, which was like you know, 30 pages long. And there was a big photo of whoever the, you know, cowboy star of the day, uh, was above the, above the fold. But I would find myself looking at the driver's site license sized photo of the sports columnist that <laughs> <It> was <laughs> next to the column. I'd be like, oh, wow. I wonder what he's like. Uh, you know, and I was, I was almost less interested in the actual star athlete that I was in the star reporter. And it's weird. And looking back at that, I was like, Oh, I was setting myself up for a career of being in media and writing about the media. Though I could not have possibly articulated that in, in second grade or whenever that started happening. Sure. So, yeah, so that was, that was really the start. And then a very conventional pre digital <laughs> existence from there, you know, writing for the school paper, I wrote a few stories for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram had a kids section. This is back in the days when newspapers were fat and happy. Mm. And they sent me off to cover a few like, you know, baseball award shows that were local and things like that. And I wrote wrote them up. 
This is when you're still in high school? In uh, middle school, I think it oh, started. Wow. It was it was a pretty young a young thing. And then, uh, yeah, high school, I was editor of the newspaper. I was sports editor. And, yeah, and I tried to make the high school sports beat as, you know, butt-kicking as, as was possible. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody read anything I ever wrote. The only evidence I had that anybody read anything was um, it was my senior year. I think this was probably the last article I ever wrote. But the baseball team that we had there at, at uh, high school in high school lost, like, in the first round of the playoffs. And all the seniors played really badly. And I just wrote an article saying, now well, senior leadership really let this team down. I think I quoted <laughs> the coach saying the same thing. And one of the one of the players' parents confronted me in the school parking lot and was said, you know, you've known these kids since kindergarten. I just couldn't believe Brian Curtis would write something like this. And and that was, you know, that was like my first moment of, oh, wow, this is what being a journalist is like. You know, you uh, you try to tell the truth and, you know, inevitably get everybody mad at you. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a great story. So you're already doing it kind of uh, in high school, middle school. And I've, I have found, yeah, like uh, the other sports journalists I talked to, Tim Cato also started when he was like 15 or something like that. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think sports journalism in particular might draw people early um, for whatever reason. Yeah, because I think kids are commonly sports fans, right? And if you're not a good athlete, I don't want to speak for Tim, but I'm guessing he's not, you know, Dirk Nowitzki. <laughs> uh, you just, you, you kind of ask yourself, well, what do I do? How do I, how do I, you know, how am I going to be into sports without actually playing it? And that's often the answer. Right, right. So then do you go off to college and study journalism or what happens next? I never did because I was, um, I was dissuaded. Somebody told me, a teacher, in fact, in high school told me, you know, I heard that you don't really have to major in journalism when you get to college like that probably is in fact isn't a good idea you should go learn other stuff so i didn't take any journalism classes and i just majored in in uh, political science at the university of texas but i wrote for the newspaper there and that's how i got you know that was that was sort of the next thing that i did was essentially writing editorials uh for the for the daily texan at ut and were you doing a little bit of sports and a little bit of other stuff or was it all in sports or no, it was, it was almost all on politics. I sort of had talked myself. It's funny because I only really wanted to be a sports writer. And then I got to college and I guess I had, I guess I started thinking deeper thoughts or trying to think deeper thoughts in a, in a 19 year old way. And I thought, you know what, sports writing, that doesn't seem all that important. I should be, I should be doing something uh, more important than that. So I should, I should be focusing on politics or world affairs or something else. So that was, that was more my focus at that point than, than sports. And I sort of put it aside for a while. Sure. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, I was uh, an Asian studies major and just worked at the newspaper. Like, mm -hmm. uh, I, I always looked at the journalism school and thought, do I really need 13 journalism classes or however many? And uh, <laughs> most people said no, if you ask them. So, so yeah, I mean, at, at, and then from here, it's basically a lot of me asking, and then what happens next? And then what happens next? So, what happens next after college? What's a, what was really funny it was actually during college. I, in a very again charming pre digital way, I saw the Nightline. Remember Nightline, the old ABC News sure. show, which was still hosted by Ted Kopp at the time. Had summer interns. I think I read that actually in a in like a bound book of like here are some cool summer internships. Mm -hmm. So I took all my resume and everything and I sent it away in the mail. <laughs> and I, and I, they called me back and interviewed me a couple of times 
And I got the internship somewhat improbably. And I went to Washington, D.C., and I got to spend the whole summer there wow. in the newsroom. And that was such a cool experience. And, you know, it was Ted Koppel was off covering Kosovo and then coming back. And you know, network news was not completely in the depleted state that it is now. It still seemed very vital and very cool. Like there was a live show uh, every night at midnight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at 12.05, and we had to be ready. And a lot of times, sometimes they would tape it in advance, but a lot of times we would stay, you know, there'd be like a big sh- school shooting or something, and we'd be there all night and, you know, running tapes around to get on the air. So that was my that was my first really, really cool experience in that in that regard. And then the second thing, I'll just go ahead and say what happens next, and then I'll <laughs> give it back to you. Sure. But at the end of college, almost again the same thing. I think I actually used the internet this time, but I looked at I was looking up, okay, what... I was thinking about going to journalism school, finally taking those those classes. And then I looked and I saw that the New Republic magazine in Washington had interns paid, I think, three thousand dollars a month. And I thought, well, that sounds really cool. I'm really interested in politics. I've just worked at Nightline. Once again, I mailed all my clips to them. Uh, They called me in. They flew me to Washington for an interview. I was I I seem to remember at that point, I wasn't completely sure what the New Republic (laughs) <laughs> was all about you know i think i'd read some stuff so i remember stealing some copies of it from the ut library to put in my bag so i could make sure that i had a really good handle in the magazine by the time i got to washington mm-hmm. but um i got the internship and i talked to some people and i said don't go to journalism school take the job so i did and that was my first job wow wow and was that before or after the what's his name Stephen glass <laughs> yeah uh, it was right after so i think you're talking about a period of a couple of years so it was appeared when they had a time when they had maximum distrust for 22 year olds so it's always a great time to to start at a magazine yeah yeah no all i know is the movie but it it is like an anxiety bomb for journalists basically that movie mm-hmm. um yep. <laughs> so did that turn into a job or, or or you just did an internship for a few months or how did it go? yeah it was it was nine months so it was it was a long time, and that was nice, and I got to write some pieces. And then near the end of it, uh, a full time or it was a, it was a temporary job, but more but sort of not an internship, but not a forever job opened up at Slate, and that was interesting because that was run at the time by a whole bunch of former New Republic people who had left the magazine and decided to found what was then an early online magazine. So I put myself up for that. They gave me that job, and then I wound up working there for the next six years. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure to people listening now, this sounds like quite the journalism pedigree, all these names. But I mean, back then, I mean, how did people, was Slate still the big thing that it was now? Or was it a yeah, bit this different is, back then? It's 2001. So it was, it was definitely cool. It definitely had like, I mean, people thought very highly of it. It was just that something that was only online was still, and this seems so mind-blowing today, it was still seen as something kind of weird. <laughs> I think in a lot of people's minds, mm-hmm. and a lot of people said, well, I don't want to go work there. You know, my, my articles are on a computer. What? I, I want to be at the New York times. I want to be at the New Yorker. I want to be someplace like that. So I think there was a little bit of that, but that was, that was of course eroding very quickly. And within a few years would be gone completely. Mm-hmm. And what was your position there? I was a whole bunch of things, but generally kind of a, a assistant editor, deputy editor of, the culture section, and then I wrote a column, a weekly column about pop culture. Okay, so this is completely 
yeah, I mean, sports crosses over into pop culture for sure. But uh, yeah, you were really not on your path to, to being a sports journalist. That's for sure, I would say. Yeah, I had done, I think I was the nominal editor of the sports section there for a while, though that didn't really mean much because there weren't very many sports articles this late. <laughs> but yes, I was um, I was not doing that full time by any, by any imagine, sense of the imagination. I was just doing my thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, since you hadn't really taken journalism classes, I mean, did you take to this all pretty naturally, uh, working at all these very varied places? Nobody who saw my first drafts would say that. <laughs> I think they would say Brian seemed like a you know reasonably bright guy, very enthusiastic. He showed up on time all the time. He made his deadlines. He did whatever, but he needed a lot of help in the beginning. You know, and 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 didn't know how to write an article like at all. And I think, you know, so it was one of those things. The cool part about working at all those places was everybody was really, really smart. Everybody, you know, had mastered this sort of style that's, you know, where you use you write an editorial, but you're not trying to be George Will. Right. You're not trying to use big words. You're trying to use really simple, direct language to make an argument. And you're hopefully making an argument that people haven't seen a thousand times before that was the big thing at slate was don't write anything that exists already out in the world <laughs> you know if we if we're in favor of i don't know i'm trying to think of a you know whatever uh something about the war in iraq if that's already been written in the new york times you just don't need to write that you can just assume people have already writ- read that and you should just write something completely different something you believe but just something people haven't read so it was two. It was it was interesting. It was one. It was just learning how to write. Like how how do you how do you write a lead? How do you write a kicker? How do you make? I remember somebody telling me you should have an idea in every paragraph. Because remember, these are not reported stories. These are all almost opinion stories that are based on like what we at the time were nexus dumps. So you need you need to have mm-hmm. a, an idea in every paragraph. You need to have a good lead. You need to be funny. You need to do those kind of things. And then the second thing was just you need to be different. Everything you write can't be a variation of something that's already out in the world. Everything just has to be people to read them. It's like, Oh, that's really interesting. I'd never thought of that. Um, and that was, that was the big thing there. Like they just wouldn't, they wouldn't let you write something that seemed sort of ordinary in terms of opinion. They wanted something really, really different and new. Right. And yeah, no, that's good. Good advice to get early on. Even if you're not in the realm of opinion, just, you know, if somebody's already doing it, if the New York Times is already doing it, you shouldn't be trying to duplicate that. That's not how you stand out as a journalist. Even if it's uncovering new facts, you should, you know, find your own new facts, not just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, chase what the pack is chasing. Um, cool. So what happens after Slate? Six years is quite a while. Uh, what leads to the next jump? So I worked in some some sports articles in there, especially about the sports media, going back to my early interest in the subject Mm -hmm. stories about, you know, the way sports writers worked and some, you know, I would see people covering something the wrong way and I'd write a story about it. I'd I'd sort of put together enough of those, enough of those stories. And then the New York times was starting, this is in 2005, a, um, a magazine that was a quarterly sports magazine called play. Mm Hmm. And they were said, you know, we have the New York Times magazine that's weekly. We're going to do a couple things. We're going to do a real estate magazine. We're going to do a sports magazine. This sounds like a very mid-aughts <laughs> kind of idea. We're going to put even more paper into the universe. <laughs> but they hired this great guy named Mark Bryant, who had been editor of Outside Magazine in its glory days. 
you know, he'd edited uh, John Krakauer's, you know, piece of Into the Wild and Into Thin Air and all those things. And so he came with these, you know, great, he was a great editor, great friend of mine still today. And somebody sent him, I think a friend, mutual friend of ours sent him some of those stories I've written for Slayton. So this, you should hire this guy to write a media column because he can really do it. Um, and he read them. And then I wrote him a really long memo about what kinds of stuff I would cover if I was going to be his media columnist. And he hired me and that was a huge break for me. And I think I was wow. 27, something like that. And again, getting the, felt like getting a little bit of a call up to the New York times. It was a sport. It was a magazine. It was something at the time that was kind of challenging sports illustrate a little bit, not directly, but just, you know, by proxy anyway. And it was so exciting. I just remember being so, so happy and so f- absolutely freaked out <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> I was finally going to get to do this thing that I, one, I was gonna, I was actually going to be a sports writer, which I hadn't really been full-time at all. Mm-hmm. And I was also going to get to write about the sports media, which was my stupid passion within sports writing. And I thought, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. This is amazing. And I was going to get to do it at the New York Times where everybody, you know, a lot of people anyway, were going to read it. I would have a forum where it would would get read. So yeah. And that allowed me to, it wasn't a full-time job because they only came out four times a year, but it allowed me to quit my day job and essentially write for them and then write freelance some other magazine stories and make a job that way. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible at that age. And I mean, yeah, that was going to be my question. You're a columnist. You're only writing one columnist, one column every three months. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a, it was a little hard to be timely. It turned out at a quarterly, <laughs> I'd get this, you know, email saying, Hey, what do you want to write for the next issue? And it was three months away, you know, and you're thinking, wow, what's going to wow. be interesting then? That was a weird challenge. And sometimes it was fun because you could say, okay, it's going to be basketball season. So I want to write about this announcer and he will still be an announcer when, you know, when the, when the season starts and I know it'll be okay. Or the Olympics are coming up or something like that. But it was, It was really hard. And I think, you know, ultimately, I think there was a sense maybe within play that at some point we were going to be monthly. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have to write, I'm going to get to write this column every month and it'll basically be my full-time job. But, you know, then of course the um, housing bubble happens in 2008, 2009 and play was actually just canceled. But it was a very, very fun run there of uh, three years. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. That's an incredible opportunity. And uh, so once the magazine gets canceled, what what happens to you? Do they retain you in some way or you cut loose or how does that? They didn't, re- they didn't retain me because we were just our own little garage band within the times. Mm-hmm. So I was, I didn't have a job and, or I was, I think this happened sort of right at the end of play, but I, I was so lucky again. I just, and if you, there's a theme here, just how lucky I've been um, so many times in my life, mm-hmm. but Tina Brown at this point, former editor of the New Yorker was starting a website and this point she'd done Vanity Fair, the New Yorker, and she'd done talk and she'd gone and done this talk show. And now she was going to start her own website, which turned into the daily beast. And a former slate editor said, we should talk to Brian Curtis. I, you know, he, he might want to do this. So she invited me in. I remember she paid me to come do an editorial brainstorming session with her for like three days in the middle of the week and we were in hmm. Manhattan at the IAC building because it was going to be owned by Barry Diller and sitting in there and I didn't even know the name of the publication. I'd never met Tina in my life, which was very exciting uh, for a journalism nerd like me. 
And we sat there, you know, making up, you know, what would we cover today? What would the headline of the story be if we covered this today? Tina, it turns out Tina and I have a very similar sense of humor somehow her via british tabloids and me via something else i don't know american sports pages whatever it is and she hired me as kind of an editor slash writer for her and i wound up working for her for the next couple of years wow yeah and uh that was right when the daily beast was starting up right and uh yes yeah she hired me i think i was there about six months before we launched we launched in october oh wow 2008 really on the ground level for that. Yeah, um, it was very fun. I mean, we were kind of sitting in an office kind of staring at each other for months and months. And it was interesting <laughs> with Tina because, you know, she was such a, she's so, so legendary for being, you know, what's hot, right? That, that was both her gift and what people would then, you know, make fun of her for. But she mm-hmm. just had this idea, this sort of spidey sense of what is going to be a magazine article you know what what should what should somebody write right now and i remember there was one and i can't remember the topic i think it was about madonna but she was like she came in the office one day and she said somebody should write about madonna i don't remember if it was madonna's plastic surgery i don't remember what it was somebody should do a piece breaking this down that would be a great story this is before we even have a website so she's just talking here and then like a month later it was in new york magazine like adam moss had gotten <laughs> had the same idea <laughs> And it was like you could see this weird skill of magazine editors is that they could see around corners, right? They're all working on these weird schedules where they're a monthly or a weekly or whatever it is. And they have to figure out not what's interesting right now, but what's going to be interesting in a month or two months. And she could do that and do it really, really effortlessly. It was just such a weird superpower to to see up close. <laughs> and I, was, I can't do that. Uh, I have no talent for doing that, but she was just, it was, it was just amazing. She did that all the time. Uh, it was just, it was, that was her, her, her skill among many. Mm-hmm. And were you still focused on uh, opinion stuff at that point? Yeah, I was kind of, they sort of made, they, they let me edit politics. They helped. They, they first assigned me to create, they had a daily news digest. In fact, they still do. I think uh, that was like, where somebody would get up at four in the morning and essentially what are the top 10 headlines of the day, you know, read everything and give me kind of a, give me kind of a smart news digest, you know? Okay. So Mm -hmm. Obama did this and then this happened and here's some foreign news and then this happened and here's a funny story and here's a, here's a Hollywood story. So I sort of ran that for a few months and then became just more of a conventional editor. I wrote a lot of pieces on the side, stuff like that. They let me freelance a lot of stories uh, for Texas Monthly and magazines like that, so I didn't really stop writing magazine stories. But um, that was that was basically the job was to kind of just be an editor, and then I wrote lots of headlines because I love writing funny headlines. So like Tina would always assign me to write headlines and stuff like that. Sure, and in in these magazine stories you're doing on the side, I mean, is that um, more of would those be like more reported stories? Were you were you also the kind of journalist who was picking up the phone, interviewing people, that sort of thing? Yeah, they would be less columny and more featurey. So I'd get on a plane to Texas and go write about Texas quarterbacks or the Texas Rangers. These were a lot of sports stories. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I did during that period. Just just all kinds of things. But yeah, mostly reporter reported type stories. Sure. And then uh, what's what's the next step from there? Is that Grantland or what happens next? Yeah, it is Grantland. So. Simmons I'm I'm sitting in the I'm sitting in in the Daily Beast and I'm I was fine but I was also thinking like I'm just I don't really want to spend any time as an editor like I don't 
I don't love it. I like editing. I hope, you know, it's, I was, I enjoyed working with writers, but I would just kind of at some level always be mad that I wasn't writing something. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> I just get frustrated. Like, why am I not doing this story? Why, why, why don't I get a chance? So I was sort of looking to write more and figure out ways to write more. And, and I was kind of downsizing myself at the, at the beast. I would say, okay, why, why don't I just work half time and I'll come in and help you do things and, and whatever. But I, but I need, I need this time to, to write. And Bill happened to be starting Simmons happened to be starting Grantland in 2011. In fact, 10 years ago this summer. And he emailed me and said, Hey, do you have any ideas? And I said, yeah. And I said, so I sent him a memo and he gave me kind of like a mini contract. This was before the site launched. And I didn't even know what Grantland was going to be at this point. <laughs> I don't think anybody did. And so he gave me a mini contract. He said, this is great. You know, write. I don't remember even how many pieces he expected me to write, you know, probably like six or seven, something like that over the course of a year. Hmm. And it'll be great. And so that was really, really fun. Um, I rem- I wrote my first one before we launched. I think it ran the second week of the site, maybe right, maybe like a week, week and week, week and a half into the site's launch. And yeah, and I'll, all of a sudden there was this big canvas to just that was really the job I had always wanted. I did, I couldn't have articulated it to you, but a job mm-hmm. where you could write in lots of different kinds of styles, you could write columns, you could write features, you could write oral histories, you could write whatever it is brian phillips writes which is a magical form that is completely all of its own you could just do all kinds of things and and you could also uh you know write about politics a little bit within the within sports right you could just you could just take a story in any direction you wanted to do and so that was just such a cool opportunity and so i did i was on that small contract and then it was funny because i think i think what happened is i don't know if these things were connected but i wrote a profile for the new york times magazine i was still so i have grantland i'm kind of freelancing i'm Mm -hmm. sort of still at the beast at the same time and i wrote this profile um for new york times magazine i think the next day uh the guy who was running grantland sent me a note and said hey do you want to come on full time and just write for us and i said yeah that sounds fantastic so that was that and I've been with uh, with that team ever since. Wow, what was the profile? It was of George Lucas. Oh wow! Yeah, which is gonna which is gonna come up later in this podcast because you asked me <laughs> you asked me to think about some questions. So I'm, I was gonna save that, but yeah, it was about George Lucas. Uh, sure, let's definitely get into it. But uh, but yeah, Grantland. I mean, was this yeah a brilliant site because they could do whatever it was you know this sports culture there was no like hard line division like anything could kind of go on the site and i mean that that's where i first became familiar with your work i mean when i was a correspondent in beijing like i'd always like walk down to a noodle shop and like read grantland on my lunch break like <laughs> as like you know the escape from whatever the wire service journalism i'm doing um and i remember yeah being in a specific noodle shop when i like open up my phone and it's like Grantland has closed. <laughs> it was such a <laughs> bummer. Like I really hadn't seen it coming. Um, so, I mean, uh, that's why when I, I ask you what's next, I presume that is what's next that, um, you know, everybody kind of had to move on once it, it shuttered its doors. Everybody had to move on. And then I worked a little bit just at ESPN kind of basically throughout the end of my contract, but then I went out and wound up working for, for Simmons again. So, you know, for me, it, 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 Obviously, something came to an end, and that sucked on a lot of levels. But then Bill was starting something new. It was very the Ringer, which is very similar in a lot of ways, and and was working for all the the exact 
you know, pretty much the exact same people that I worked for at Granlin. So it was awesome. It wasn't much of a transition at all. It was just like, oh, okay, cool. Here's the next thing. Let's do this. And Grantland and The Ringer, I guess, kind of have this kind of ragtag vibe uh, about you guys. Uh, and I was just curious, are these newsroom environments? Are these places where was Grantland newsroom? Is The Ringer newsroom where you all sit in a room? Or, I mean, well, it, pre-pandemic. It was. It was. <laughs> was I was going to say. <laughs> there were, back when anybody had a newsroom. You know, it's funny because I was in New York living in Brooklyn when – I was writing for Grantland, so and Grantland was headquartered in L.A., so there was a newsroom, but I was never in it, and it was it was really a you know kind of a collection of people who ran it and editors, but there were a whole bunch of freelance writers scattered throughout. And then it, when we got to the Ringer, it just seemed like we had generally more people in L.A. My wife and I moved to L.A., where she was from anyway, um, and there were just tons of people in the newsroom there. So by the ringer time, I can attest, yeah, we definitely had a very cool newsroom, which is always really fun to me. To me, the newsroom, I don't know how you feel about this, but it's the best place in the world because it has other journalists who are just really fun, you know, crazy, neurotic people to be around. And it's the worst place in the world because you, you're just talking to them all day and you don't get anything done. <laughs> right. Because they're telling you all their problems and all the great stories they're going to write and this and that or just having cool conversations. And then you're like, wait, wait, I think I'm supposed to work <laughs> too. And I, so I wind up, you know, spending a few days at home actually working and then going to the, go in the office and talk to people. Sure. And uh, yeah, no, I love newsroom environments. Uh, Brasilia, it's a pretty small newsroom and we haven't been in it for a while, but still, yeah, I miss being in that environment. And about those conversations, talking to other people, I mean, I was, uh, this was a while back, a couple months back, I was looking at your, you know, recent work for The Ringer. And, you know, you obviously do the Press Box podcast, which is a, a couple times a week. And if you look yourself up on there, you're that's most of what you do. And then you see some occasional sports pieces. And then occasionally you see something out of left field about like, a movie or something like that, that you'll have been drawn in and write it with, you know, three other people. Um, uh, I, I forget what the one I saw was, but I was just curious how much those just come like in my imagination, you're standing around the office and this somehow comes up and then they realize, Oh, Brian had an interesting take about this. We're going to pull him into this piece. And I was just wondering if that's how those kind of more, you know, crossover type pieces happen or this is the, this is the movie thing where a bunch of people weigh in on the, on the, on the movie. I think it was one of those that uh, you'd done several months back. I I was going to say, I don't remember doing one of these. So we sure it was me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe uh, I did. Unfortunately, it's already been a couple months since I did my research on you. So I can't, can't remember, but it was some pop culture thing. But that Um, is a very ringer thing. Yes. Can you, can you dive in and, and, uh, and on this, yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's lots of those kinds of things. And this is one thing that's great about working there is that, there are no lines between the departments. You know, it's not like an old the newspaper where it's like, okay, you, these people may write about entertainment and these people may write about sports and these people may do this. I mean, everybody can write about everything and, and does, you know, and every, there's some people that have kind of a more defined lane, but people just write about stuff. And that's such a cool part place to be. I really, really like that. Sure. And now, now that I've heard your biography, one of the questions I sent you, I've realized doesn't make too much sense. 
But uh, just uh, to explain, like, uh, the reason, you know, I invited you on the podcast is I had interviewed Tim Cato, and uh, he's a a journalist for The Athletic uh, in Dallas reporting on the Mavericks. And one thing with him is, you know, he's been a sports journalist since he was 15. And uh, he just, you know, he basically said this, that, you know, he would like to try to do different stuff. He, you know, doesn't want to do sports since he's 15 till he dies. Um, which is understandable. And then we were chatting about, like, who has this quote-unquote crossover appeal. And, of course, like, who comes up but two guys named Brian who both work at The Ringer and used to work at Grantland. <laughs> you know, Brian Phillips and Brian Curtis. Um, and uh, he said, oh, like, I kind of know Brian Curtis. You should have him on. Uh, I try to make an introduction. And that's how, how we are here today. So I wanted to ask you about that kind of crossover appeal and how you define yourself. But it, it's pretty clear from your biography. I, I don't know what I expected pre-Grantland. I thought it was going to be, I don't know, newspaper, sports reporter or something. But uh, all yeah. along, you've kind of had this crossover appeal, I guess I would say. Well, I would just say it's it's also just kind of a something between a short attention span and just getting tired of one or the other, you know, because I would just be a full on sports person. And then I would just be like, I just don't, I just, I've just hit the wall with this. I want to do something else. You know, I want to, I want to think about another, another issue or another topic or whatever it is and just write something else. And the nice part is now I can kind of do it day to day and week to week. But I always just, I always found like, I love sports. I love if you, if you want to, if I ever said like somebody says, what are you? What, what's your job? I would say I'm a sports writer. I love that. That's what Uh I want to be. That's what I always wanted to be. Since I was a kid, that is my identity, but I want to be a sports writer and I want to also be able to write about lots of different kinds of things. I would just be really, really bored if I was only writing about sports. Nowadays, I think that doesn't sound very different from at all. You know, everybody who's at Defector, who is at Old Deadspin, who, you know, people that write for The Athletic. I mean, there's lots of people that just do different kinds of things within the sports beat. But, you know, when I was growing up, there were that did not exist all that much. And I was always just kind of like, I don't think I would have articulated it, but I would have wanted a job if if, if, if I'd been really been able to pin it down. I was like, well, I want to write about sports, but I also just want to be able to just think and think about different things, write about different things that I'm not just focusing on one thing. Yeah, yeah. And you found the perfect place now at The Ringer. Um and then I guess the the last you know thing about kind of your career to talk about is is your podcast, the Press Box, which is you know I, I would not call it a, a sports podcast, even though sports no. figure in pretty heavily. Like you talk about it, you know whatever's in the news about it, but it's you know the whatever the zeitgeist is in the media kind of is what you talk about, sports or not. Um, how long have you been doing that and kind of how did that start? And also you don't have any background in radio, but when I listen to it, you sound like you, you sound like you have that radio sports voice. And like, Oh, <laughs> you. thank you very much. That's nice to hear. I don't have any background in radio. Uh, we've been doing it for about two years. Um, David Shoemaker, the guy doing it, who was also a veteran of Grantland. Uh, works for the ringer and also happens to be my best friend from the time we were 14 years old and in high school together in Fort Worth, Texas. So that's just one of those funny things that happened. Like he and I went to high school together, lived together in New York as we were coming up, right? We were roommates and we both started writing for Grantland and then we are now at the ringer and now we do a podcast together. 
<laughs> so this is this is like modern friendship, right? Our our friendship has been turned into a podcast. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what happens. No, but he's the great part about doing with him is I've spent the Malcolm Gladwell rule of do everything for ten thousand hours and you become an expert. The only thing I've ever done for ten thousand hours is talk to David. <laughs> Usually at bars, you know, about all kinds of the questions of the universe. Us just sitting there and just talking i mean just entertaining ourselves by just talking to each other about i don't know sports movies uh, the media i guess everything so when we decided to do a podcast it would just seem like the most natural thing in the world to talk to david shoemaker <laughs> twice a week because i'm like i we can do this we do this all the time you know we we and we can just kind of we can kind of it's funny because chris ryan and andy greenwald at, at uh at the ringer also very old friends and, oh right yeah and have a and have that vibe i always think they have i think they have the best podcast vibe of basically anybody on the planet because they just talk like people who know everything about each other who know where the other one's going to go but it doesn't sound like they're you know doing a broadway show like they're not just like they're doing an act like hey what do you got here you know they they just have a really really natural rapport right but anyway that's yeah. that's the fun part of doing it with david as for sounding like a person who, who uh, you know, had some audio experience, I think there's because I've been writing about sports announcers for so long that I'm just unconsciously imitating them. And I, you know, <laughs> get that, I get that vocal quality in my voice because I've been listening to too many baseball games over the years. So I, th I think it's, uh, I think it's imitation more than anything else. Sure. And I mean, how, how did you start doing it? How did you come up with the idea? And also, I mean, now it seems like, it makes up perhaps the lion's share of your job at the ringer, at least for, in terms certainly, of output. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, if, yeah, if you look at, as you say, if you look at the thing, it's like, cause I do it twice a week, right. And I don't do anything else twice a week necessarily. Um, it came out of, there was an idea that there were, people were interested in me doing a podcast of some kind. I think somehow we settled on the name, the press box. I did some, I dabbled around in it. You know, I'd have, if there was a big media story, I'd have somebody on, but I, but I did it every like very, very, you know, once every couple of weeks or a couple of months or something, it was not like a continuous thing. And, you know, we kind of talked, like, what are you going to do with this? There had been, there were some very sports media focused podcasts around that would just be like, here's Joe Buck. Here's Al Michaels. Here's this. And let's talk about this. And I didn't want to do that because again, that just to go back to the thing I told you earlier, but it just seems like so much of your life is that and wanting to have another outlet sure, and to talk about other things. But so two things happened. One, David volunteered to do it with me, which was fantastic. Cause I was like, great. This, this is what I want. I want, I always like podcasts where two people are talking to each other, not necessarily, you know, a podcast where you're just trying to bring famous people on to do interviews. No offense to you, but you know, <laughs> certainly I'm not including myself in the famous category, here, but you know what I mean? Sure, I like yeah. when, I like when there's a vibe where I can like, where it feels like I'm parachuting into a friendship and the friendship is in it is, you know, the friends are sort of also talking about stuff. So I, I wanted to do that kind of podcast, but, um, and then we kind of, you know, it's funny. I think world events basically dragged us around for a while. Like we weren't going to do lots of politics, but what, what else were we going to do over the last couple of years? What else were we going to do in January? You know, which is like the most insane month. You know what? I think we at the ringer, like a lot of other places, we have emergency podcasts, you know, like, I don't know, a movie came out or something crazy happened in sports. <laughs> like we had like emergency state of democracy podcasts, you know, like <laughs> what is happening right now? We need to, mm -hmm. we need to talk about this. So, 
Yeah, it's been it's been kind of dictated by that. I think post-election we've been able to talk more about things like Naomi Osaka and the French Open and and you know some just we've been able to have people like Chuck Todd on. We've just been able to do sort of broader things in media, which is probably probably our happy place, but we stand ready whenever there's political news to jump on that too. Cool. And yeah, I would definitely agree you and uh, Schumacher have a good uh that sort of you know, patter of people who have known each other a long time. And I would say, particularly in the pandemic, that's like the sweet spot of podcasts that I've wanted to listen to is, you know, people who know each other well talking to each other, whether it's The Watch, whether it's, you know, I don't know, the McElroy brothers or something, just like these sorts of, you know, uh, kind of funny friends talking to each other, probably because we're not getting a whole lot of that in our real lives. <laughs> um, yeah, we're craving friendship, so we'll take it any way we can get it. <laughs> um, okay, great. So I would say that's probably uh, good for the biography section. Is there anything you want to add before we move on to talk about some stories? No, no, I'm good. I've talked about myself plenty, so, so yeah, <laughs> let's move on. Cool. Okay, so uh, there are two questions about stories I always ask, and I'd like to start with the one that's more of a downer so we can end on a high note. And the first one I ask is, what is a quote-unquote story that got away? A story that you wanted to do, maybe you tried to do, it uh, went wrong for some reason, or you could never convince an editor, or you could never get the source you needed to talk to you, or whatever reason. But what's a, a story you wanted to do, but kind of it got away from you? This is the question that I'm going to duck, Jake, and I'll tell you why, because this is actually sure. the most haunting thing to me of, of what you've heard is a totally happy, totally happy career and fulfilling career in life, which is because the, the thing that bugs me most of all are those stories. And they're not stories necessarily. Sure. I'd say the ones in my category that I would think of are not stories where I didn't get the person. To, the person just wouldn't talk to me. Right. I ran into a reporting blog. The stories were stuff that I was allowed to do equipped to do maybe even half did and just never wrote it because I had to move on to something else or you know I got distracted by something else so they're my fault and they those are the things that drive me absolutely nuts and I hate thinking about them I also have this crazy uh, notion that someday I will write them and redeem myself mm -hmm. uh, in my own mind there's this funny I was talking to a movie producer one time interviewing him and he was like he remembered going into the office of an aging director who I think had been on the, on the blacklist, you know, like this was a guy who had had a very interesting Hollywood career, but he walks into the movie director's office and behind the director, there are all these scripts and they're all the movies the director has made. And he goes, Oh my goodness. You know, look at this is so cool. This, the, all these scripts are your movies. And, and the director says, no, 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 no. That, 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 those are the movies I've made. These are the movies. And he points to this other bookshelf with all these unmade scripts hmm. are the movies I have yet to make. <laughs> and that, and that's how I feel about those stories. I just like, I, oh yeah, who cares about the ones I wrote? What about the stupid ones that got away? So that's, that's my clever way of, uh, of, of ducking your question. And hopefully, hopefully I will write one or two of these pieces and, and, uh, and find some peace. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely have some ideas that kind of eat away at the back of my brain that are just, you know, they're never the the burning story that needs to be done. And they just kind of don't get done for that reason. I know. Um, and it sucks, doesn't it? It yeah. just absolutely sucks when you only kind of blame yourself. You know, it's not, oh, that editor, he could, I couldn't convince him because I have lots of editors that are very nice about saying yes. And oh, that, you know, just, it just, 
I just didn't get it done. And that just pisses me off. Right, right. And it's, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like media about journalists kind of like reinforces that just because like, there are all these stories of the intrepid reporter who doesn't give a shit about what anybody else thinks. And he just finds time on his own time and he makes the calls and he makes it happen. And like, yeah, no, it is possible. But I mean, uh, I don't know, I'm pretty hard pressed for time with my job. And like, I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily need to be a workaholic and be doing this story, but it still kind of like eats away at you and, you know, you blame yourself, but we need um, to, we need, we need more stories about reporters that just really screw it up. <laughs> That's what we, not, not Stephen Glass style screw it up. Just, just don't get the job done. That's what we need more stories. And we can normalize that experience. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, trying on the podcast, I'm trying. There we um, go. There we go. Uh, Okay, cool. And then I guess to move on to the high note, if you could pick one story you've done any time in your career and just tell us what a little bit about what the story was, how you went about doing it, got the idea, start to finish, any reaction, kind of the story behind the story. Sure. This is this is one that just popped into mind. It was at Grantland. It was just because it was a particularly satisfying experience. I don't know if I wrote it so well or or what, but it was just just from a reporting point of view, very very satisfying and enjoyable. There had been this whole thing. So the NBA, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, who are neither of whom are still there, were both playing for the Oklahoma City Thunder at the time. And we were in this kind of weird zone where on Twitter and mostly also on websites at the time, people would post video of the players from the Oklahoma City Thunder kind of just just saying mean things to reporters who were asking them questions <laughs> after a game. It became this weird currency and almost, it was almost like a lot of sports Twitter and, and the internet had gotten to this point where they thought it was the reporter's fault whenever the player was mad. <laughs> like that was, that was what was happening, but it was mm-hmm. the, it was, it was just a perfect prompt for a story, which is what's happening here. Why? And why does this keep happening in Oklahoma city in particular? So, I sent that to my editor. He said, that sounds great. And I flew down there and I wound up doing a bunch of things. One of which was just go to a thunder game and go into the locker room and sort of see what that really, that environment was like, um, to see how really, really short and obligatory these post game interviews are. I think the one I watched just lasted like a couple of minutes. There was just absolutely no information, uh, exchanged at all. It was clear that Russell Westbrook, who was a player, didn't want to do it. Um, it was very, very uncomfortable uh, and nothing and nothing bad had happened that night. It wasn't like he'd had some terrible professional setback. It was just a typical night on the beat. And then the other thing I did is I just went and called everybody who covered the team. And, and what was funny was they were they were like, no, 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 the players aren't mad at us. They, they, they don't hate the media. They don't hate us individually. They just have absolutely no relationship with us at all. Hmm. They barely know who we are. They don't care to know who we are. They have been told by essentially by the organization that they need to, that they can spend the absolute minimal time with us. So you had this really very interesting sort of thing that had happened, which Oklahoma city, which is a smallish market by NBA standards, by pro sports standards has these two giant international internationally famous basketball players there. Mm -hmm. And then you have these guys writing for the Oklahoman newspaper who are covering them and the world has changed so much that that basketball players Twitter account is 1 billion times bigger than not only the reporter for the Oklahomans, but the Oklahoman itself. 
and they just don't need him anymore. Right. And it, it was a really, it was just a really interesting way. That's something that I think anybody who covers sports already knew, but it was in a really interesting way just to illustrate it. And, you know, you have all these like tick offs, right? When you, when you write a bigger story, you need, you need anecdotes. There were lots of anecdotes about how, you know, the, especially the press minders there had kind of kept the players away from the reporters. You need a main character, somebody who can help you tell the story. And that was this guy, Mm -hmm. Barry Trammell, who was and is the daily Oklahomans columnist, this gray haired guy who spent his, almost his entire career in Oklahoma city. Like he's just the guy and he is the most famous sports writer by uh you know by a thousand points in oklahoma and he was having the same thing and he was you know he and i I remember going to breakfast and him talking to me and just being really sad because it was like this wonderful thing had happened for his career which was that you know oklahoma city had gotten a professional sports franchise and you know and and here were some of the biggest stars in basketball that were in his backyard that he could write about it and he didn't know them and he was never going to know them he gave me this quote and he said, he said, I, he was talking about Russell Westbrook. He said, I hope he stays forever, but unfortunately it's not going to be any kind of relation based situation. I'm just going to be writing about how great he is. I'm not going to be writing about who he is, mm-hmm. which I thought was so, you know, it was on its own. I thought it was just very kind of heartrending, but also it just, it sort of explained a lot of what sports writing has become where these guys are so big that you know, people in our business just don't see them all that much anymore. And they just don't, they don't have their, it's not possible to have the relationship with them that you could have had 10, 20, 30, and certainly 40 years ago. So anyway, it was just a really satisfying story on those grounds. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. And I read uh, that book about Oklahoma city boomtown. So I kind Mm -hmm. of am familiar with that area era a little bit. Um, But uh, yeah. And who, who did you write that for? Grantland. Grantland. Okay, cool. Well, I'll look for that and I'll throw a link up to it in the podcast description so people can check it out. Um, sounds like a good story. I mean, how, how do you, how do you deal with that type of situation? I haven't talked about that that much on the podcast, but it's something, you know, I have to do fairly regularly. You go out to Oklahoma city. I'm assuming you don't have much point of reference for Oklahoma city and you've got to report no. this thing out. I'm just curious how how you go about doing that. ESPN had a reporter in Oklahoma City, Royce Young still does, in Oklahoma City, who was really, really helpful to me just in terms of the lay of the land and kind of, you know, here's, you know, here's XYZ, that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I was mainly just going to a game and talking to people, just walking up and talking to people. And, you know, they were, they were very, it was interesting because the journalists were so frustrated and and sort of understood that it was a problem that they didn't have any any inhibitions about talking about it. So it was just really it was it all it was one of those you know how you have stories where you just you have to dig and dig and dig and then sometimes you you do what you're supposed to do but it all just kind of comes to you and that was one of those where it just all kind of fell into place really really nicely. That's great. That's great. Cool. I'll definitely check it out after this. And uh, that does make me curious because George Lucas was not in that story. So I'm sure we have him ahead still to look forward to. Um, (laughs) uh, Next. So next, I guess we'll move on to the lightning round, which is faster paced questions. Feel free to answer at whatever length you want. It's shorter than tell me the story of your life, though, which was really the first part of the interview. Um, I thought these answers should be about 30 minutes long each. So let's let's do it. And uh, yeah, whatever length you want, uh, but they'll be faster paced. Uh, Do you feel ready? I'm ready. I am ready. Let's do it. 
Great. What is a must-read publication that you look at every day for your job? And I'm I'm not talking about the obvious publication, but maybe if there's something you want to shout out that you think is particularly good uh, that helps you keep up on stuff. So I'm not looking for the New York Times, and you also can't say your own publication, The Ringer. But if there's something else... <laughs> Can uh, we say you... the not obvious version of the obvious publication, which is the print edition of the New York Times? <laughs> sure, sure. So I insist on getting that. It's like it's horrifically expensive. I think it's like $600 a year. Wow. And you have to call like every once in a while and convince them to give you a lower rate because it's so much money. But <laughs> I cannot think of anything more valuable in my life because obviously we all read the New York Times. Everybody reads the New York Times. Even if you don't like the New York Times, you read the New York Times. Right. But when you have the print edition in your hand, all the problems of modern media where it's like, oh my God, I'm getting sucked into this weird Twitter fight and all this stuff. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> you just, you know, you read the paper and if you're interested in reading, you know, in depth on anything else, which you, which you almost certainly will be, it's all there. It's all there. And you get some, you get some international news, you get politics, you get Biden, uh, you get a few opinions. It's just, I don't think anything organizes my brain better than looking at the, and I don't always read every article. I don't certainly don't read it cover to cover, but just having that, I, in fact, I just bought it out here and I'm excited to go down and read it when we're done. I just can't like, it just organizes my mind in a happy way that reading news online never will. That makes sense to me. I mean, get away from a screen kind of, it's more leisurely experience. I just feel like it would be like the New Yorker problem. Everybody used to joke about. I feel like I would have a thousand copies of the New York times lying around and I, that I'd meant to get to read, but that I wasn't able to. But that's um, the thing, Jake, is you actually throw them away when they're newspapers. You don't like, you don't need right. to put the stack of the, but it's also, I would say it's not just leisurely. It's that, it cuts off it it gives you a well-rounded education every morning which is something that twitter doesn't necessarily do right twitter's the best twitter's an awesome source for news so i'm not running i'm not going to be a, like a super old man here but i'm just when i read twitter i learn lots about things that may or may not be important to me i see lots of movie trailers things like that when i read the new york times i just like oh here's something that's going on in poland here's what's going on in politics and i i i just feel like i've been i've learned a little about a lot of things so that's happy Sure. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? So it can be any medium, you know, text, uh, podcast, whatever, uh, but purely for fun, not related to your job and kind of journalistic in nature. There is a, uh, there is a podcast slash radio show on BBC Radio 4 called In Our Time. Have you ever listened to In Our Time? Yeah, I've, I've listened to a couple episodes. Yeah, so it's it's kind of amazing because um, it's just it can be about any topic. It's essentially, hosted by this guy named Melvin Bragg, who's been in uh, been in British media for a really long time. And he what he does is he'll pick a topic, and then he convenes uh, a panel of three or four professors, and essentially they just at length talk about. They spend an hour just explaining and talking about the topic. I'll give you some some uh, recent ones. The Boxer Rebellion, <laughs> the Maya <laughs> Civilization, uh, the Statue of Liberty. I, I listened to one on the California Gold Rush the other day, and it just feels so <laughs> out of time, so different from everything I have to do on a daily basis that that is my that is my favorite thing that doesn't necessarily impact what I'm doing on a daily basis. 
Yeah, that's great. I haven't listened to it in a while, but uh, yeah, previous guest this at this point, probably like 40 episodes ago, recommended it to a guy in oh, wow. Romania <laughs> who freelances for the New York Times. So you're in good company. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and then let's see. What is the best journalistic article piece or whatever you have consumed recently? And it can't be from your own publication, but sorry if I forgot to tell you that in advance. No, it's okay. Um, there was a piece in on ESPN.com last July, and I just read it because I was doing some judging for an awards thing. It's called The Hero of Godall Park by Tom Junot. Are you familiar with the story? I don't think so. So this is... A, this kind of story, which is a kind of true crime mystery, uh, you know, kind of thing. When I see these kind of stories, I run screaming in the other direction because there are too many of them <laughs> in our world <laughs> yeah. right now. Too many podcasts about true crime, too much writing about true crime, too many murders, too many of these things. Also, I just feel like when people write these kind of stories, they're like, you know, Adam Dunn, the baseball player trying to hit a home run at every at bat. Right. And you know you get the work up and the and the and all the all the color and everything, and then it just nothing happens. There's no payoff because either the case was kind of unresolved or the writer just didn't. I don't know. I don't like these kind of stories, so mm-hmm. I read this story. But it was Tom's, you know. So I read this story recently, and I, in fact, I think I had avoided it when it came out, but I was reading it. This story is awesome. This story is incredible. It, it starts out with a with a car just riding out of control around a baseball field during a game, like a car driven off the street and everybody (laughs) reacting and trying to get the hell out of the way. Uh, One person kind of emerging as a hero of the encounter. And then it, but it just goes into the backstories and, and all the sort of buried things like that have happened with all the people that are standing on that field, the, the person driving the car, all those kinds of things. Again, I understand this sounds like something that could potentially be bad, but this is one of those cases where it, it just turns into mayor of East town. I mean, it's just like, you're like, Holy cow, this is good. <laughs> and Tom, Juno, who I do not know, wrote it so well. I know of his career, of course, I just don't know him personally. He, um, he wrote it so well. It is so, so good. It's told in parts. Also, if I see it, any, any piece of journalism says part one, I also run screaming away. Yeah. But this is one where I could not wait to read the whole thing. And I read it in, in, in uh, one sitting, and it was just a perfectly told, uh, amazingly reported piece of journalism. I don't want, I'm, I'm being a little vague because I don't want to give away anything about it. No, no, that's perfectly fine. And yeah, I would say I, I know what you mean. I think I read a piece the other day about like some big like uh, digitized like uh, therapy company, like psychotherapy company in uh, Sweden or something had uh, a huge leak. And, you know, it starts with this amazing story of some guy who's, you know, terrible psychological history was like leaked on the internet and the impact on him. But it just, there was no follow through whatsoever. I read it to the end and I'm like, this story doesn't go anywhere. Like it had such great promise and I won't say the name or anything just because don't want to, you know, criticize people but uh but that sounds great what was the name of the public of the story and where did it appear just one more time it was called the hero of godal park by tom Junot in espn.com cool cool i'll look for it um is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that is not related to your job um movies probably a little bit 
old movies that were that I guess this is all tangentially related to my job. Um, I've been reading a lot of books about like explorers lately. I don't know why, but yeah, no, I, I just kind of, I kind of run around, run around uh, the whole ballpark and, and read all kinds of stuff. Cool. And then uh, this is kind of a, a broad question, but what is the like either coolest or craziest place or situation that uh, being a journalist has gotten you into, you know, the type of situation where you're like, I cannot believe this is my job or this is my life. So that's where we come to George Lucas. This was the New York Uh Times magazine. He had just made the movie Red Tails. I don't know if you remember that, which was kind of his, something he did not direct, but it was kind of his swan song as a, as a producer. And he was then going off into retirement. Mm -hmm. And um, I convinced the Times magazine to let me write about it. And I'm not somebody, I don't know about you, but I'm not somebody who ever really gets starstruck around people that I'm interviewing. Like, it just doesn't. Mm-hmm. I'm always one of those things where I'm always like, this will be neat to reflect on later if I actually write a good story. But if I don't write a good story, it'll be stupid and I'll just be mad. So <laughs> I don't care. And I also just don't, I have never personally liked doing the whole kind of fanboy fangirl thing like oh my god this person's awesome i just don't think that way so i'm pretty i'm pretty just resistant to everything like that but i got sent to do this and i was very excited to do it and i walk into the office and i just remember sitting down i'm like oh my god this is george lucas (laughs) this is this is it was the one time in my life where i've just been really (laughs) it wasn't it wasn't even like excited or happy it was more just like wow Sitting in his office, it was at Skywalker Ranch, Northern California. There was a, you know, I had toured the facilities where there's like a statue of Yoda in a water fountain. Uh, <laughs> I remember he had this kind of very expensive looking painting of Padme Amidala from the Star Wars prequels behind him. When we were talking, we were sitting in, <laughs> in this room. Uh, you know, it was almost like all the prequel movies have been made into fancy art. And, you know, he also... Skywalker Ranch has like every old movie poster at the time he had bought and put into you're walking through these halls and halls of like old movie posters. It was so amazing. Uh, it was just a very cool place. But just talking to George Lucas, I, I don't I don't think anything has been ever been an out of body experience. And, a, you know, how did I, how did I get here kind of moment than that? That was that was my number one. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, did the the one thing I've got to ask, though, is uh, how did it feel to then be forced to talk to him about the movie Red Tails as opposed to, <laughs> you know, his more well-known work? Well, I, I think I, I worked in some questions about the other stuff, too. You know, we definitely, we definitely talked about Star Wars. <laughs> At the end, I was like, can I just get in one about Indiana Jones before we go, just for my own personal personal interest? And I think I turned that into a piece later. But yeah, he was he was it was really, really fun. And then the next question, I believe, is if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? This is so hard because you want to go back in time, right? Because I think all of us in journalism have this kind of golden age idea that things were were better <laughs> in some age that we weren't working in. Like, oh, wouldn't it have been romantic to be one of those hard drinking sports writers from the sixties and seventies. So I didn't, I didn't have a name for you as, so I think one thing that would be really cool is to be when we're talking about the Oklahoma city thunder to be in a, in an era where as a sports writer, where people would actually athletes would actually talk to you where you would walk into the locker room after the game and you know, they might be pissed off. They might be angry, but you would have some home numbers, 
you know, you would have some, you would be at the bar, you would have that sort of thing. I think the downside of that would be, you know, you couldn't write stories like you could now. And I'm not just talking about like covering up for the athlete. I just mean like, you know, the organs, newspapers and magazines just wouldn't give you the freedom that writing has now. But I think it would be so interesting to see it from the other side of the fence, right? We live in this time where it's like, right. oh my God, we got the internet, got all the information we need at our fingertips. We, you know, those of us who, who are lucky to have really cool jobs, we can write in a, in a way we want to write. We can, we can do this. But those guys are very distant. What if we were on the other side of the fence? Someone sounds like an episode of Quantum Leap or something. What if we were on the <laughs> other side of the fence and we could be like, oh my God, all these guys are Mickey Mantle, here's Roger Maris, here's everybody. I work for a newspaper. I have to file you know, 800 words on deadline. It'd just be funny. I would just love to see that from the other side of the fence and, and, and kind of understand what that was really like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I wonder a lot about that. Like, I don't know. I think about like the scene in the, the movie Gandhi where it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Martin Sheen is the reporter and he has to like rush to the phone and call in the news and like, I, yeah, I really wonder what it would have been like. I'm sure in many ways it would have been a pain in the ass, but it would be yeah interesting Ma- to know. Imagine if the phone didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, somebody is really mad at me because this very simple piece of machinery doesn't work. Um, it's been a fun time. It's been mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Ooh, that's a good question. I think just to ask for things you don't know, ask, ask about things you don't know. Cause there's a lot of times when I think it was, I felt like, you know, it was either when reporting a story or just like when hanging out in a newsroom where there was just something simple I didn't know. And I, and I thought I, I thought people expected me to already know. And now I would go back and say, Hey idiot, just ask a question. Just take somebody aside and go, Hey, what am I supposed to do in this case? What should I do here? What's the first thing I should do when I, What's the thing I should make sure I do when I when I report this story? I think I learned a lot of those things by accident or the hard way or, you know, and of course a lot of journalism is like that, but I wish I'd just ask more questions early on in my life. Sure. Yeah, that's good advice. Um what is one thing most people don't know about you? Um what is one thing? I was just obsessed as a child with collecting autographs. Huh. Sort of. I sort of. I sort of want to get back into it because I miss it. <laughs> so I'm in Fort Worth, Texas, right? Let us. I love Fort Worth, but it's not exactly Hollywood. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not like celebrities are walking down the street every day. And I used to send. I used to get sell. I used to get those like hard photo mailing envelopes, and I used to get you know kind of a Manila envelope to put on top of it, and I would send letters to celebrities and ask for their autographs. Huh. And I did it. I did it first with athletes. You know, when I was a kid, I'd send them a baseball card, and then I sort of graduated. And so I'd be like, "Oh, cool! Look at that actor and married with children." I, and what, what, why don't I write him a letter? And I got. Let me tell you something. I mean, I did this <laughs> so much, and I got so many signed eight by tens back. And this was again, there was nothing about making money here or selling them or anything. I wanted them. I wanted them to, to write my name to Brian. You know, like that was the coolest huh. thing to me. But I cannot tell you how many times I did that. And it was purely for, I was interested in those celebrities for sure. I liked the kind of, you know, third, third hand contact with famous people, but mostly I just love autographs. 
and I just loved collecting them. And I've seen like now, I guess nobody really cares about autographs anymore because they want to take selfies with famous people. That's what uh, players have told me that if they run into people on the street, nobody wants an autograph. They just want a selfie. Uh, they want a photo, right? So they can post it on Instagram. And that's, I totally understand that. But uh, I love autographs. And I, like I said, I kind of, I kind of want to get, I have a son now who's, who's eight and I'm trying to get him into it so I can do it by proxy. Uh, <laughs> so I can continue to collect. That's great. That's such an yeah, old school thing. I remember my older brother wrote to some actor or comedian once and got one of those. But yeah, I haven't thought about that in a long time. I wonder if, you know, if that still is a thing. If you get a hard copy letter in the mail as a celebrity, do you still send off? That's like I said, I, I think I want I think I want to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we people have moved on to the selfies and to, to NFTs or God knows what. Oh, like, my uh, God. Who wants that? Who wants that? Right. I want, I want an old school autograph. Right. Um, cool. That's a good one. And then uh, what is your most embarrassing journalism related story? If you have one. This one, I had to kind of um, I had to do some therapy uh, to, <laughs> to, to remember 2002. Charlton Heston, the actor and gun rights advocate, is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, or it's announced that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So I was at Slate, and they had a column, I guess it's been, I don't think it's around anymore, called The Explainer, where essentially they would say, okay, we're going to run off and answer a question you have about the news. And I was the editor of that column, but I wasn't the reporter, but the reporter was gone that day, and so they said, hey, can you answer the question of whether Charlton Heston has to give up his, you know, relinquish his guns now that uh. he has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Now, this was done from a purely apolitical place. It was just one of those, that's an interesting question, right? Like, do, is, it, is that a thing? Is that another thing? So I remember calling somebody in the California government, like attorney general's office, whatever it was, I cannot remember, but getting, you know, making all these calls, getting somebody and they're like, yeah, he's going to have to relinquish his guns that's part of the that's just something that people so i i was like oh great so i wrote it up and the story came out and that was totally wrong actually Ugh. and yeah and you know i hadn't called lawyers who would have told me well probably not for these reasons this is this is not and i had written it very very definitively uh the person also who the government official who told me that would not also call me back after the story was wrong <laughs> which put me in a really mm. terrible position so it got corrected. Um, I was really embarrassed and I was just really mad. And, you know, it was one of those things where I just hadn't called enough people or the right people. And it made a real impression on me that I don't ever want to be caught out like that again. Yeah. Yeah. Good lesson to learn. But yeah, tough. Like, uh, yeah, I've realized that that embarrassing question most of the time, you know, you expect oh, embarrassing story. It's going to be hilarious. But no, every journalist who's had an answer to that question, it's actually kind of like, you know, a journalism <laughs> horror story. It's usually not funny at all. Yeah. I mean, in, in retrospect, it's like, OK, well, you know, whatever. But at the time, you just remember being young and you remember being so eager and wanting to do a good job and just being so pissed off that you let yourself down like that. Right. Yeah. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV or other media property about journalists and why? I love this question. Uh, we've been threatening on the press box to do a journalism movie power ranking mm -hmm. to put them all in order. So I'll, I'll give you one and a half. The half is that when I did that internship at Nightline that I mentioned, I came back home and I rented broadcast news 
and I was like, oh my God, that is, that is, <laughs> that is television news. <laughs> like I had just seen it for real. And then I, and then I saw that movie, the tension between entertainment and news and everything. It was, it was so well done. Um, but the, I think my, the one that I love the most is the Humphrey Bogart movie Deadline USA from 1952. Have you seen this movie? No, no. Okay. Humphrey Bogart is a newspaper editor editor of a newspaper called the day which is kind of a butt kicking daily obviously daily mm-hmm. he he is two things are happening one the newspaper is going out of business <laughs> and the second thing is he is trying to investigate this gangster who is kind of controlling the city he's in i think it vaguely new york but i'm not sure new york is actually mentioned in the movie mm-hmm. um it is a fabulous movie for a couple of different reasons one is the newsroom that they constructed a night is actually a very very realistic newsroom i'm sure you've seen movies where it's like here's the newsroom and you look at it like that doesn't look like any place (laughs) i've ever worked the people don't talk like journalists everything this movie it's almost like they parachuted into the new york daily news in 1952 and just filmed the newsroom it's pretty incredible Hmm. um it is kind of a, a little bit of a melodrama but also the stuff the reporters actually go out and do resembles the kind of thing reporters would do in real life you know i feel like every journalism movie we get it's like russell crowe being shot at or something when he's reporting <laughs> yeah. story. that is not going to happen domestically anyway right all that many times in someone's career uh you know they're not gonna be unraveling the mother of all conspiracies and things like that this is just reporting on a gangster i think one of the journalists gets roughed up but otherwise um anyway it's black and white it's really cool uh I would highly, highly recommend Deadline USA if people have never seen it. Yeah, those are two great answers. I've seen broadcast news, but you're the first person to mention it. And the Bogart one, yeah, I've never heard of, so I'll have to check that out. And yeah, two new ones in 50 episodes. That's pretty good. I I keep thinking that well is going to run dry, but uh, it keeps running. (laughs) I'm happy. I'm happy we got some new ones. That's cool. and then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Ooh, what job would I do? That's the hardest one for me. Because I don't know if the other people you've talked to, but I can't imagine myself doing anything else. At least it's not like tangentially related. Sure. Right? Can I imagine myself like writing books or you know teaching journals? I don't know, something like that, I guess. But I've never been able to imagine anything else. But qualifications aside, I mean, you could be uh, a basketball player, an astronaut, oh. or whatever. Oh wait, so I have like I have all the abilities. That, yeah, uh... yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. I didn't. Re- I, I thought this was the actual Brian. I didn't realize this was like like uh, Marvel Universe Brian that could, yeah. could do could do anything. You know, it was funny when I was a kid. I think I'll go to this one. When I was a kid, I just really wanted to be like. I think probably all boys want to do this. My son probably does too. We just want to be a scientist. Um, and, and not like a, not somebody in a lab doing, uh, things with beakers, but like, you know, somebody in the, in the field, uh, pursuing, uh, you know, snakes and the largest world's largest Python kind of a field biologist. Let's go with that. That, that still holds romance to me. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Okay, cool. Great. Well, that's all the questions. I think this went really well. I'm really happy we were able to talk. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, that's it for me. Thank you. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. This was very, very fun to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian, for coming on the podcast. That's our show. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Brian Curtis, an editor-at-large at The Ringer and the host of the Press Box podcast. I'll post links to some of the things that Brian talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, August 1st. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.